pray, shall we? Lord, we love and we covet your presence among us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that it's just all about you. It really is. All things were made, not just by you, not just through you, but for you. We exist for you, for your glory, for your pleasure. And Lord, it's as we slot into that, Lord, that we find life to the full. As we walk away from the lie that we can, the more we have for ourselves, the happier we'll be. And that we discover that the more we just fall into you and honour you and make you central, we discover life in all its fullness. What a, what a wonderful secret that's been revealed. We pray, Lord, through the, through the words now, through the truth, Lord, let hearts be touched, lives be changed, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're uh, doing a series on wisdom. And um, we did an overview of wisdom week one, uh, where we, um, basically the point we made is the point Jesus makes in Matthew 7. If we could have that slide up. I don't know if the, is the PowerPoint up? It's not up. Just flick onto PowerPoint. It's my fault. On the desktop there. It's the latest one, 14.3.10. Sorry about that. Should have prepared that for you. And... Um, We'll look at this together. It, please feel free to turn to your Bibles at different points if you want to. We're going to particularly be hanging out in Genesis. It's been a long time in there today. So that's easy because it's the first book in the Bible. So it's an easy one to find. But we'll, we'll go there in a moment. But I'm just introducing it at the moment. So Jesus said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, which means life wasn't necessarily any easier. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock or it had been well built. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, so you're hearing the word, you're hearing the preaching, but you don't apply it, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, you see, biblically, often the way we talk about life, there are different images used. One of them is building a house. We're constructing something in the way that we live. It's not just that you wake up randomly and go from one day to another. You're building something with your choices. You're building something with your decisions, with the things that you say, with the way you conduct yourself. You're building something. And Jesus is saying there's a way of building, which is building on the rock, something of a rock-like foundation. That was week two. The Bible says the foundation or the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So we spent a week on the fear of the Lord, what it means to revere God. What it means to hold him in your heart in such a way that you do tremble, but you don't draw away out of fear, you draw closer out of excitement. You, want, you know when you're around someone who is, um, we described, him, described it a little bit like being around Jason Bourne, um, if you remember. It's kind of like he's, he, he's, a, he's a bad man, right? But if you know he's on your side then there's that sense of safety. I'm so right, I'm with, I'm with Bourne. Yeah, everything's all right. You know? But you're, just, you're aware of the fact that you're with Bourne and it could kick off at any moment and you want to make sure his coffee's the right strength and he's got enough sugars, etc. Okay? So that's the kind of deal. Now we say we take it from there, lift it, infinity is kind of uh, helping us to understand the fear of the Lord in the sense you're aware you are around one who has all power, all authority, all glory. In fact, when people in the Bible see just angels, people that God sends, they fall down on their faces as though dead. And they're nothing like God in their glory. So he has all power, all glory, all authority. That he hates sin and wickedness and darkness with a vengeance and a wrath that is impossible to imagine. 
And yet, if you find yourself on his side, you're the safe, safest person in the world. Something of the fear of God. You live knowing you are so safe because you're tucked in him, hidden in his love, and yet you're aware the whole time, man, of who he is. It's not some Father Christmas in the sky. It's the living God. And then last week, we looked at friendship. We're starting to build now. We've got the foundation. Start building. looked at friendship. This week, Mother's Day, we're looking at parents. Next week, sexual purity. And we'll see where we go from there. Now, the main point I want to make today, I'm going to ruin the secret at the start, <laughs> is this. Is that affection and authority are two key concepts that you've got to bring together if you want to have a proper understanding of parenthood. Of how, as a child, how to relate to your parents, as a parent, how to relate to your children. If you don't understand affection and authority coming together, you're going to come a cropper, you're going to find yourself in trouble. And in our culture, we've, we, in our culture, we've tended to kind of swing. If you, if you follow English culture over the last few decades, you'll find some interesting swings and in approach to uh, parental authority and parental affection. We'll just look at some of those just to give you a bit of a background. So um, in terms of authority, really from the Victorian era through to the 1950s, generally there was a sense of a kind of authoritarian parenthood. That it was very clear the parents in charge. But sometimes it was kind of, it went to some quite unhelpful extremes where, the, where you know, children have to be seen and not heard. You know, where kind of a, a closing down, a clamping down of kiddies' personalities, not allowed to flourish. They just got to be there and kind of, you know, do whatever Victorian children did. I imagine them writing lines for some reason, I don't know why, you know, in a sort of a black suit, you know, that kind of deal is in our head. And that was the kind of approach we had. But then you'll find from the 1960s onward a real swing the other way where we've thrown that out because it's horrible and it is. But instead, we've kind of gone for this kind of, no, blow all that authority stuff. Let's just be mates. Let's be friends. You know? So you've got this kind of 25-year-old guy and a 5-year-old son. Ah, we're, we're just mates. We're figuring it out together. You know, I don't know any better than you. You don't know any better than me. We'll work it out. And you think, oh, my goodness, this is crazy. So the poor kid's looking for guidance and the dad's saying, oh, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Tell me what to think. But no, no, no. You see, and there's, this bit, and there's the kind of been a real reaction to that authoritarian thing. And now it's like, oh, we don't blow authority. We don't like it. Horrible concept. In fact, I would say one of the biggest things we struggle with as a culture is the concept of authority. Don't understand it. Don't like it, etc., etc. So that's kind of where we've gone a little bit. I would say at the moment as a, as a kind of a, as a nation, we've just gone quiet on the whole thing. Because the authoritarian thing didn't work. The being equals thing didn't work. And so now, so now we're kind of like, well, we don't know, let's just keep quiet. But what the heck are we going to do? Because the kids are going crazy. When it comes to affection, I would say, again, the, the, maybe it's caricature. It obviously wasn't around in the Victorian period, but the, the kind of caricature is, is that it was very much this kind of a distant, aloof relationship between parent and child, not too many hugs, not too many kisses, not too much kind of, you know, verbal affection, but very much stiff upper lip. How you doing, son? No, you're allowed to speak now. How you doing, son? Fine. Good. That was kind of it. Kids grew up. That was a kind of affectionate as much as it... That's the image you have in your mind. I think that was very much... I'm sure there were exceptions, but that's the image we have in our mind. And then really, I would say now we're in an interesting place culturally where there's loads more hugs going on. You see parents doing that a lot more. There seems to be a lot more freedom there. But I think we still struggle very much culturally in terms of verbal affection. Being able to look our children in the eye or look our parents in the eye and say, I really love you. I think you, you know, and to be able to speak words of affection and upbuilding. We just don't do it in the main. Some families are beautiful exceptions, but there's an awkwardness very often. 
This is like, what do we do? Do we hug? Do we shake? You know, it's a classic English thing, isn't it? You know, you end up, and you end up kissing the neck because you aim wrong, and oh yeah, all that, you know. So we, 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 are, we are confused. What is, what is the culturally acceptable greeting, shaking hands or hugging, for, for, for English people full stop? We, we don't know. I've developed a, a, a move where I can do both at the same time. I'm very happy with it. Confuses some people, but it, it's, it's, you go in with the hand, you, you get the shake, and then you bring it over. It's nice. It's nice. I like it. But there's a confusion there. What do we do? You know, develop sort of high five, you know. And we don't know what to do. So there's that, right? So, um, now, another thing is that we tend to review authority and affection as opposite poles in terms of concepts. Okay? You're either going to be a parent who, you know, you know your authority and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll draw a line, you'll make it clear, this is how it is and I'm in charge, or you're going to be the affectionate type. It's all cuddles and kisses and not much sort of guidance and rule. And we've got to bring those together if we're going to understand biblically what God's got in mind for parenting. But before we do so, I want us to read a story that highlights in the Bible how family life can go very, very wrong. Um, and it's to do with parents and children, and it will just help us to see really what, what, what damage can be done in one, just one nuclear family. Um, and I know as I'm speaking, I said to Davina last night, I said, you know what, as I've been preparing this, I'm just aware it's a tricky one because we've got mums here today for Mother's Day, and you want it to be a big celebration. But actually, as I've been studying and thinking about parenting, it's a thorny subject. It's a thorny. It can bring a lot of pain. When, when, when parents aren't all they could be, or when children aren't, or both. It just, so I'm aware of that, and we'll try and just walk that sensitively. But let's, let's not just kind of, let's hit some stuff today and really learn together. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So let's read a story. So we're going to go uh, Genesis, um, Genesis, where are we? Where do we start? If we could bring it, Genesis 25, starting 21 to 28. We're just going to set the scene of the story here. Isaac is the son of Abraham, and uh, he married, a wife, uh, married his wife called Rebecca. And um, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. She couldn't have children. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. She said, if it is thus, if you've blessed me, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, um, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So just going to set the scene for a moment here. First of all, really, um, tension from day one. Tension in the womb. (laughs) You know? Tension in the womb, this is, this is serious stuff. Now, uh, we find that they're chalk and cheese in every way, even physically. One's all hairy. I don't, I don't know, you get this hair on some babies, I think they call it... Um... <laughs> That's it, I knew there was a term for it. What is it called? Balloon... V... Come on, nurses. Veluga? What is it? See, you knew, but you just kept quiet. And you let me say the wrong thing. You, I was to say beluga, that's a, that's a whale, isn't it? <laughs> Lanugo. Yeah. Now, what you find off when babies are born, they have some hair on their shoulders or something like this or other things. You think, what have I got? You know, but it's okay, that goes, that drops off. But um, obviously for Esau, he was just really, really hairy from day one. He was covered in the stuff. 
And uh, it's like, man, alive. Jacob comes out smooth, you know, like Hazel after a shave, smooth. Insane. So we've got Esau today, when he had to shave himself. No, okay, so, so they're totally different even physically. Um, but what we find is that there's favoritism. Here's the deal. There's favoritism. This is a nightmare. If any of you have ever been the object of favoritism, are, are, are one of your parents' favorites, or the opposite, you'll know the pain of both. Because as a favorite, I think you, you can enjoy that in your immaturity, but actually you often become alienated by your other siblings. If you're not a favorite, you feel that in your soul. But look, look at how tragic this is. Why is Esau Isaac's favorite? Because he's a skillful hunter, so he kills animals and he cooks a really nice stew that Isaac really enjoys. I mean, how shallow do you want to go? Due to his greed, loves his belly, Esau's his favourite. Why does Rachel love Jacob? Oh, well, I don't know. I think the, the clue is he was a quiet man dwelling in tents. He was more domestic. More of a domestic sort of guy. He was the kind of guy, he didn't want to go and play outside, he didn't want to get dirty. He liked to be indoors, in the warm. And something of that, I guess, appealed to his mum. Maybe she thought he's a bit more like, a bit more like me. Maybe that's it. You could be, someone of your children could be your favourite. Why? Could you see more of yourself in them? This is sad, but it's true. And so we find straight away, you think there's going to be trouble here. Why? Because each parent has chosen which one is their favourite. Partiality. It's ugly. It's an ugly, ugly thing. As a result, what we see as we read the story is all kind of terrible stuff. Now, before we go into the story of what happens, I want to just say this. I know that God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is seen in this story. It's clear that God had chosen Jacob above Esau. I know all of those things. Okay? So I, I get that, and I know that, and it's part of God's sovereign purpose. And God will sovereignly work out his purposes even when people mess up and do horrible things. That doesn't mean, though, that it justifies what those people are doing. Because God can just as well work out his purpose through people acting in a godly way. Okay? So it doesn't mean, well, God worked it out. So, you know, no, no, no. This is a big deal and it's bad news what, um, what the parents are doing here. So we need to just be clear on that. It doesn't let us off just because God is over it all anyway. Okay? So let's, let's read the story. Let's move on, please, Dan. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he couldn't see, he called Esau, the hairy one, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. Now take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son... Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats, that I might prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. You shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you instead before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau's a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Next slide. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. I mean, Esau is seriously hairy. And uh, she put the delicious food and the bread which she prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he, that's Jacob, okay, he's, he's tricking his father now. He went into his father and he said, my father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. 
I've done as you told me. Now, sit up, eat of my game that your soul might bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you've found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, just to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. Next slide. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I've blessed him and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, No! Bless me! Even also, my father! But he said, Your brother came deceitfully. He's taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? He has cheated me these two times. One more slide. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Haven't you reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I've made him lord over you, and all his brothers I've given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you not but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Sorry, one more sign. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Now, Esau had previously married these women from the Hittite tribe, and they were a real nuisance. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women, one of the women of the land, what good would my life be to me? So then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanites, the Hittites. 
Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your travellings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau, at this point, saw that Jacob had... Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent them away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed them, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Long reading, but here's some points I quickly want to make just so you understand what we're pulling out of here. What's the problem? Favoritism. Coming out of what? On the dad's part, selfishness and greed. He liked his food and his son could do him better food because he was a hunter. On the mum's part, why was, she, why was Jacob her favourite? Because she was more like him. I see more of myself in this child and so I will lavish my affection on him more. What did it produce? Here's what it produced. Number one, manipulative parenting. Rebecca says to Jacob, I've heard what your father's plan is. He wants to bless our Esau. Now you, while he's out bring the goats in, I'll cook them, and she's, she's, work, she's, she's looking to usurp her husband's, the father's authority, she's looking to manipulate and engineer things. Why? Because she loves that one more. And if you love one of your children more than the other one, you will look to engineer and manipulate things so that one comes to advantage. Terrible. Terrible. Sinful. Really bad. Instead, you should have just been at peace. God's will be done in their lives. What else? I would say she abused her parental authority. Because when she asked Jacob to do it, he said, I can't do it. It's all going to go wrong. He's going to find out I'm going to get cursed. She said, you obey me. She abused her parental authority to squeeze him to do something immoral. Parents, if ever you abuse your authority to get your children to do something immoral, something wrong, you're in a place of serious sin before God. It's bad. But Jacob himself, actually, is also to blame in this, speaking to children now, because he submits to his mum sinfully. You see, we're told that children should submit to their parents, but when their parents ask them to do something immoral, unrighteous, or wrong before God, at that point we say no. We don't give our parents unconditional submission. We give God unconditional submission. And so Jacob sort of said, you know what, mum, I'm not going to do it, No. But he did it. He, he succumbed to the pressure that was put to bear. You obey me. I'm your mum. Oh, okay then. No. No, I won't. Why? It's unrighteous. Just pulling out some thoughts here. There's lying and deception in shoes. If you ever ask to lie, you always say no. A.W. Tozer said we should have the candour of a child. Sometimes when you ask a child a question, you have to brace yourself for the answer. Why? Because they're going to be truthful. <laughs> Unless they've learned by that point to lie, to appease. You have to brace yourself. Why? They're going to just say it how it is. You go, okay. Good to hear. It's wrong. Deception. That kind of a life creates a web. A complicated web. They're having to cover your back door. Oh, who did I, t- I told them that. I told that one that. They better never meet each other. Crazy. Crazy. Horrible. What else? You see the power of the Father's blessing. 
You want to talk about parental authority? Look at Isaac's words. There's just a power in it. And once he'd, once he'd spoken those words over Jacob, and Esau said, well, what have you got? It's done, I've spoken them. What, what is this? the power in the spoken word? Parents, parents, parents. If you're a parent here, we're all children, aren't we? We're all children. We all know the power of parents' words. Very often we live under that, the power of those words for years. Life words that propel us into fruitfulness or death words that kill us. Parents, pray along with me. God, keep a guard on my lips. Say those things that are wise and helpful. We see sadness. We see bitterness. We see hatred, murder, revenge. And then perhaps the most tragic thing is Esau at the end. So he's got his two wives who his mum hates. And he's, he's like, and then he overhears this conversation with the mum. They're talking to Jacob saying, don't get wives like Esau's, whatever you do. Go, over, go back to the land and get a decent wife from over there. And then you find Esau just heartbroken, looking to please. Again, just trying to please, trying to get that affirmation. He then, right, okay, uh, I'll, go to, I'll go to the Ishmaelites and I'll get another one. And it's just tragic. Anything to just get that father's smile, that father's blessing. Ooh, the power in parents. The power that parents have. The authority that parents have. Now remember the fear of the Lord is a foundation for wisdom. Revering God and God's ways. How would this story have looked different if Isaac and Rebecca had really feared the Lord? Like I said, God worked out his purposes anyway through it. But how could they have lived differently? Well, if you've got two parents with two very different children, the odds are that one parent will naturally feel a slightly more affection towards the other one. To one, and it was just that's natural. You just feel, man, we just, you know, you can get, you know, you have different chemistry with your kids. Did you know that? Different parents have different chemistry with their children. I never knew that before as a parent. You have a different, some you just connect with a lot easier, others you have to work a lot harder. It's a funny thing. I, I never knew it would, it would be like that. There is that element to it. Some you get one another's sense of humor when you're changing a nappy in a few months old. I remember with Levi, he was literally a few months old, did stuff, made a silly noise, he was in bits. He was in absolute bit, barely laughing, months old on the nappy changer. Oh. He loves a silly noise. I love a silly noise. We love silly noises. Yeah, this is funny things that just happen. Parenting is a funny old thing. But in it, or if you fear the Lord, you recognise the Lord knitted both of them together in their mother's womb. All right? They're very different. One of them might naturally appeal to me naturally more than the other one. But the Lord in his wisdom has knitted them both together in their mother's womb and they are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. I might see more of myself in one than I do in another, but they are both fearfully made in the image of God. As a result, I will conduct my parenting in reverence. And I will shower love, affection, I will lead and guide them with as much responsibility as any one of them, however many I've got. Why? Because I'm parenting under the fear of the Lord. God has entrusted me with these precious children. They're not mine, they're his. I've been entrusted with them for a season to guide them and to love them and to establish them on a good foundation. I will do so. Yeah? You're parenting out of the fear of the Lord. It's not about, oh, which one appeals to me more? Oh, which one sense of humour has got? Oh, which one can I see more of myself in? That stuff is way down the list. More than anything else is God has entrusted me with these precious image bearers. Hallelujah. What an honour. What, and as you do so, you find God just honours and blesses that impartiality in parenting. You would have found that with Isaac and Rebecca. 
Rebecca would have honoured the fact that the firstborn gets the blessing. We'll just we'll sit with that. We'll, we're not going to try and manipulate around it because he's not my favourite. We'll just trust that God will make it good. God will make it come good His way. There's just a rest in it as your parents. You haven't got to constantly, oh, this one better, you know, do better than this one, or my kids have better achieved this or achieved that, and you do all kinds of crazy stuff. I remember when I first was a Christian, uh, I've been a couple of years, a guy said to me, would I look after him? He was an even newer Christian. I said, yeah, sure. I said, we met up for the first time. I said, so what are you going to do with your life? I'm going to be a doctor. I said, why? He said, uh, well, well, my mum wants me to be. I said, okay, but do you want to be? No. Well, what do you want to be? A computer program. What are you going to be? A doctor. Why? And my mum seems to be. Do you want to be? No. What do you want to be? A computer program. I thought this has been a breakdown in communication here. Six years of medicine. There's something you don't want to do. I said, we need to talk about this. And basically what had gone on was the mum had an agenda for him. You will become a doctor. Why? She's living out some kind of thing. Some kind of thing in her own heart. Uh, maybe she didn't become one and wanted to be. So he will be. That's wrong. That's bad. Now, of course, you're leading your guide, but you can't just impose your dreams. You'll think you will become this. That's wrong, sinful, terrible. What does he do now? He's a computer programmer, and he's really happy. Now, we honour the parents in the way we do it, but we've got to work these things through, you see. What else? Jacob, if he'd feared the Lord as well as he should, he would have said to his mum, No, I'm not doing it. Sorry. I love you, Mum. I want to honour you, but I can't do that. So simple. If either Rebecca, Jacob had just done that in that conversation, there'd been no lying, no deception, no sadness, no bitterness, no hatred, no murder, no revenge. Every ingredient of that deadly cocktail would have been bypassed through a simple bit of the fear of the Lord. It's a sad, sad story. We see bad affection here. Affection being withheld. Rebecca withholds it from Esau. Isaac withholds it from Jacob. No, it's bad. We see bad authority, manipulative authority. How should it work? Here's how it should work. All right. I expected a woo or something. Those arrows took me ages. Okay. Good model, bad model. Ideal model, worst case scenario model. Okay. Ideal model, the big one's the parent. Small ones, the child. Okay, what we have here, the parent should be initiating appropriate verbal and physical affection. Appropriate. Okay? But initiating. Speaking words of life. Cuddles. Hugs. Cheering on. Encouragement. No uh, public humiliation. You've got to turn them off. You take them aside. You do it privately. You've got, to, you've got to smack and that kind of thing. You do it well when you do it privately. We'll talk about that another time. But you do it with appropriate affection. And kind authority. I read a book on parenting that said parents should be benevolent despots. <laughs> a despot's a ruler, you know, they have all authority, but they're benevolent, they're good. And so the way they use that is to guide and to encourage and at times to correct, but gently. But there's a kindness. What should that produce in the child? Honour. Ultimately, what should a parent be? Godly. Should re- represent God. Why? They are, because the kid is God's kid and God has entrusted the child to that parent and said, represent me and my authority. Be like what I'm like in that relationship. And then he says to the child, and now honour that. Now, if the parent is like that, it's a lot easier for the child to honour that kind of parenting. And so they will respond as above. They will learn to be able to show affection, speak affection, give affection, because they're responding to what what they're receiving themselves, and they will happily obey. Why? Because the authority is kind and good and wise, and they grow in trust of their parents, and in the end they come asking their parents for advice, rather than just trying to do stuff behind their parents' back. 
ideal scenario. Worst case scenario, we have initiated inappropriate affection. Okay? So these jokers who pedophiles talk about, you know, it's affection and all of that. It's totally sinful, inappropriate, disgraceful. Or no affection. It's just not, the words of life are never spoken, the encouragement's never brought, the hugs are never there. It's just kind of distant. It's just this distance, this coldness, this sense of detachment. They respond as above. That's what they're getting, they respond to them. Abusive authority. Two ways. Either dominating parenting that just squashes and suffocates all of life. Or no guidance at all, no wisdom, no nothing, just, oh, you'll figure it out. What do we get? Rebellion or discouragement? This is, this is how it should be. This is God's plan. And I just want to quickly look at how Jesus Christ makes all of this right and then we're done. You up for that? Yeah. Is it too hot in here? It's just me because I'm walking around screaming. Okay. When you walk around and scream, you get hot. That's a little lesson for you. Okay. Okay, this, this, we can just, uh, okay, so this can go off for a moment because it's so attractive it may distract. Okay, <laughs> okay, so let's look at Jesus. To look at Jesus and understand Jesus well, you've just firstly got to spend about two minutes in the Garden of Eden where God created Adam and Eve and he, co- and he created them. Originally, God said, you are to be my image bearers. Re- made them in his image. And so what you have, you have Adam as a, really, as a representative head for the whole of humanity. Now you might think, oh my long words, what does that mean? Representative head, it's a bit like this, it's a bit like having a prime minister. Okay? Gordon Brown is our representative head. Tony Blair was our representative head. Now I want to just help you understand the impact of this idea of representative head. Tony Blair decided that we would go to war in Iraq. I'm not making a comment on that, I'm just speaking the facts. As a result, everyone in the UK, regardless of their political disposition or whether they thought it was a good move or a bad move, you find yourself at war with Iraq. In what sense? In the sense that, regardless of what you thought about the war, what you thought about the invasion, you could have well have been on that tube on the 7th of July, 7-7 at King's Cross when it blew up. Somehow you find yourself involved in that and under that kind of risk. Why? Well, because you are under a representative head, Tony Blair. You understand what I'm saying? You get brought into the decision made by the representative head. In exactly the same way the Bible says that the decision that Adam and Eve made, particularly Adam in his, in his unwillingness to, to be godly and, and to walk in the authority God gave him to obey, but he conceded and let Eve just be deceived and then along followed her and ate the fruit that God had said don't eat. The Bible says he took the whole of humanity into sin. The whole of humanity into destruction. Creation fell under God's judgment. And so... All of us are born in Adam, the Bible says, under the representative headship of Adam. We're in trouble. That is why in parenting or friendship or sexuality, whatever you talk about, generally speaking, we make a mess of it. Why? Because we're in Adam. And we were born with a sinful and a corrupt heart. Why? Because we're born in Adam. And he was sinful and was corrupted. And so we're under Adam. Jesus Christ comes, the Bible describes him as the second Adam. He comes to be a brand new head over a brand new humanity. And so the way Jesus lives and what he does, it's not just an example, although it is wonderfully that, but actually he says, listen, I am obeying perfectly and I want to bring you into the good of my obedience in the same way Adam brought you into the bad of his disobedience. It is staggering. You might say, if I said to you, how comes you're in Adam? What did you do to be in Adam? You'd say, nothing, I just got born. I just got born and here I am. I'm in Adam, I didn't do anything. 
I wasn't at the Garden of Eden. I didn't eat the fruit. But look, I'm born a sinner. How so? Because you're in Adam. What did you do? This is what I'm, I'm, I'm just in him. How can you get right with God? Please don't start thinking at this point, well, if I read my Bible more, prayed more, went to church more, sang those songs, put my hands in the air like some of those guys, I'll be okay. No, you need to be grafted out of Adam and into Christ. Simple as that. So, but what do I do? Well, there isn't a response involved, but it's really more about what he did. What did Jesus do? Jesus modelled perfect humanity. And I want to particularly apply it in terms of parenting today to show you really what was the perfect way Jesus modelled how to, how to be a good child and all that through honouring his heavenly Father first and foremost. That is the model, that is the pattern. As soon as you move away from a love for God and a, the fear of the Lord and that just sense of loving him and giving him your all, you will go askew one way or another. Look at what Jesus, when Jesus was 12, he got, he got lost, or so it seemed. His parents couldn't find him, took him to a feast in Jerusalem, travelling back, and then they're thinking, well, hold on a minute, where is he? Now you might think, oh, they're bad parents. It took them a whole day to realise, no, no. What it is, they were travelling a big extended family. So they thought, oh, he's with Aunt Flo, he'll be all right. Aunt Flo, you seen Jesus? No, oh, okay, must be with Cousin Eric. Okay, Eric. No, and he's not, where? So they had to go back, they looked for him for three days. When they finally found him, here is what happened. If we look at the slide, it's a beautiful little quote. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. They found him in the temple in Jerusalem, sitting there talking with the scribes. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold your father and I. We've been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, well, Why were you looking for me? Then you know, I must be in my father's house. And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. He's talking about his heavenly father. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. See, he was submissive as a son. He submitted to their authority. But primarily, he was about the Heavenly Father's business. You see? is that order there. And they're having to learn that as they go, because it's not an easy lesson for them to learn. It's not easy at all. If we look at something else on the next slide that happened here, it's an interesting one. When Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven, the Father's voice. Here it is. Behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Public affection from the Father. You see that? Jesus is prioritising the Father and the Father speaking those words of life. I tell you now, the voice you need to hear in your spirit more than your earthly father's voice of love, more than your earthly mother's, is the heavenly Father's voice saying, I love you, you are mine. That is the voice that brings life. You can know that voice. You might say, how how can I know that voice? You don't know the kind of life I've lived, the things I've done. We'll get on to that. You lived that life and you've done those things because you're a sinner. And you're a sinner because you're an Adam. You need to be grafted out of Adam and into Christ. Then you can know reconciliation with God. As a gift. Not religion. As a gift. Hallelujah. Look at this. This is beautiful. On the cross. Jesus being crucified at this point. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. But let me ask you a question. Imagine you're being crucified. Who are you thinking about? I'm thinking about me. I'm going through this agony. Everyone's left me. I got betrayed by Judas. What's going on? Me, me, me. What's Jesus thinking? Oh man, there's my mum. He's honouring the heavenly father. As a result, he honours his mum beautifully. Make sure she can't live by herself. John... It's your mum now. 
Mary, mum, Johnny's your son. So, she, so he took her in. It's just beautiful. Why is this? What a saviour. This is Jesus. The second Adam. The perfect representative head of humanity that wants to take you into himself and represent you. It's lovely. Now we can struggle with this a bit. Maybe some of you are sitting and thinking, you don't know what I've been through. Maybe you've been sinned against real bad by your parents. Maybe you've been abused physically, sexually, verbally, neglected. I don't know what you've been through. And you can think, man, you know, just speak these words about Jesus and you make it sound so easy. I'm not saying it's easy. What I am saying is this. I'm saying that Jesus went through agony so that the sins done against you by your parents, but also, and more importantly, so the sins that you have done could be forgiven. It's not an easy thing. Jesus went through agony that we would probably never grasp fully so that there could be forgiveness and reconciliation. It's not some little thing. Oh, okay, no, no. What you've, what you've been, the injust, any injustice you have suffered is nothing compared to the injustice of the cross from a human point of view. He was perfect. He did nothing wrong and he goes to the cross and suffers for the sins of the world. You think, why? How? So that you and me can be forgiven and reconciled to God. It's glorious. And Jesus says, I will be your representative head. No longer in Adam, the disobedient one, come and be in me. I will welcome you. Jesus said, all of those who come to me, I will turn none of them away. He will not turn you away. He's too good for that. He's too good. So his life is the perfect model, but his death is a ransom to pay the price for the things you've done wrong and those things that have been done wrong against you. It's all about Jesus. The Bible says this about coming into Jesus. It says, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We can put it up on the slide. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I want to say a few things to the church here, then we're done. Church, if you are bitter to your parents or bitter to your children, you are preaching a false gospel to this city that we love. Okay? We've been called here to this city to shine the light of the gospel to this city. If you are in bitterness and anger to your parents or to your children, you are preaching a false gospel by the way that you live. This is very serious. The gospel is a gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation. You might say, but it's so hard. I know. I know. But we've got to do it. Otherwise your life is speaking something different from what you're saying. For the sake of this city. For the sake of the glory of God in your life. For the sake of the power of the gospel being released. Let's work this through. Secondly, I want to say to you, church, love young Londoners. Love them. You might say, but they're horrible. And they're hoodies and menacing stares. Love them. Find ways of loving them. Many of them have been very let down by their carers and by their parents. Some have been smuggled in illegally. Some have been systematically abused. Some have been neglected. Some have been spoiled. Some have been just fine, but they're just horrible anyway. <laughs> Because they're sinners, like you and me. Find ways of reaching them and loving them. Whether it's working in the youth club one night a week, whether it's becoming part of your residence association so you can make good decisions that will benefit the young people, 
whether you become a school governor, whether you get involved in a mentoring scheme, whether you just try and connect with one family down your street, make an eye contact. Do something to love the young Londoners. We are here to see Christ glorified in this city. Let's connect. Let's not hide away. Okay? Let's hope someone else will do it. Find a way. If you're a teacher or a social worker, pray, God, give me opportunities to just love and bring wisdom and justice into situations. Maybe you feel God's stirring you to adopt or to foster. These are very important things. Very, you need to be weighed up and looked at carefully, but it's the heart of God. It's the heart of God. It's, it's incarnational love. He didn't just save us from heaven. Okay, alright you guys, if you just do this and do that, you should be okay. No, he came down. Got his hands dirty among us. He incarnated among us. Let's incarnate ourselves among the young people of London. Find ways of doing it. And finally, let's be mothers and fathers and big brothers and big sisters to one another in the church. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, God said, where is he? He said, am I my brother's keeper? It's that attitude of, ah, well, you know, I don't know. We are one another's keeper. Primarily, God is our keeper, but we do have responsibility for one another. Let's love one another. Let's develop strong, meaningful, Christ-centered friendships where we can sharpen one another in the mission. Amen? Amen. 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 We've travelled around a kind of lot direction this morning, you know, but the burden is this. The burden is this. God is the perfect parent. He models how to be a perfect parent. And it's the bringing together of affection and authority. And to bring those things together and appropriate them in our lives in the way we relate to our parents. And if we have children, the way we relate to our children, there will be blessing. There will be blessing in that. And there will be life that comes. But primarily, if you are here today as someone who's never known the love of Jesus in your life, you may have a religious background, you may not. But you don't know Jesus is the bottom line. You can know him today. You can be grafted out of Adam with all the guilt, disobedience, judgment, and into Jesus Christ and know eternal life simply by being associated with him for his work for you. And I want to urge you, please do so. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. I urge you. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. For he loves you with an everlasting love. We're going to take the bread and the wine now as we worship and praise. And we take that, and we do this regularly every week. Take the bread and the wine, because it's helpful for us to remember. It takes us back to the cross. It takes us back to that place where he went through for us what no one else could or would have done. Where his body was broken, and where his blood was shed. Jesus, we honour you. We honour you. We honour you in this place as our rescuer and our hero. We honour you as our everlasting father. We honour you as the one who has reached out to us to reconcile us, to bring us back to you. We honour you. We honour you, Lord. We thank you for your concrete love in our lives. It's not wishy-washy, concrete. You've laid down your life for us. Hallelujah. Let's stand.